welcome to the BJSM podcast. I'm Daniel Friedman, and today I'm very excited to be speaking with Catherine Switzer about empowering female athletes and the changing face of women's sport in 2019. In 1967, Catherine became the first woman to officially run the Boston Marathon. Five decades and many marathons later, Catherine is still running and is actively advancing women's sport, health and equality. Catherine, thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks, Daniel. It's great to be here. Many of our listeners are already familiar with your story, but I was hoping you could start today by taking us back to the 19th of April, 1967. Everybody wants to hear this story, Daniela. <laughs> Even it's sort of like the night before Christmas, you know. <laughs> a tradition is all, all already in place, and everybody wants to hear it again and again. But here's here's the story. I was a 20 year old student at Syracuse University. I had been training with the men's cross country team. Um, they were wonderfully welcoming to me, and in particular, the volunteer coach for this team, who was a, the university mailman. If <laughs> he wasn't, he wasn't even really affiliated with the university, but he, he was a marathoner, and he had run the Boston Marathon 15 times. And so after he delivered the mail all day, he came in, in the afternoons and trained with the men's cross-country team and, and would run with them. And he sort of adopted me um, because I, I was so slow. I couldn't keep up with the guys. Um, we, we noticed increasingly, though, that as the distance got longer, the guys got slower, and I had more of a, a shot uh, you know, keeping up with them. And, and when it got to like 15 or 16 miles, these guys didn't want to come out with us at all. And um, that was that was an interesting thing that we had picked up. But basically, it was on one of our long runs together, in, in fact, at night and in a blizzard, that Arnie uh, started telling me another Boston Marathon story. And I told him, uh, OK, and I was cranky that night, actually. And I said, why don't we quit talking about it and run it? You know, this, you know, I'm getting tired of just talking about it. And he said, oh, well, a woman can't run that far. And I said, what? And I said, Arnie, you know, we're, we're, we're out here. We're, we're running, you know, 20 Ks tonight in a blizzard. And he said, yeah, but a woman can't run 42 Ks. I said, what? And we argued. And he said, women are too weak and too fragile. And what was implied were all the other myths about women's fragility, uh, that we obviously didn't have the muscle strength, the heart size, we didn't have the endurance capacity, and that we would fall to bits. And worst of all, we would never be able to have children. Our uteruses would definitely be falling out. He didn't articulate that, but I knew that's what he was thinking. And, and I, we argued. And finally, I said, you don't have a training partner unless you believe that a woman somewhere, maybe not me, but somewhere can, can run it. And he said, actually, if there's any woman who could, I believe it would be you. But even you would have to show it to me. Well, he said it, you know, he was so being so gruff. And, um, and, and of course, I started laughing because I took it as the ultimate challenge. And we began training together for the marathon distance. And the day we ran um, our 42 Ks in practice, uh, I felt the distance was too short. I, had, I felt really good in this workout. And I said, let's, let's run another 8 Ks. We have another 8 K loop we can do. We got to go to Boston knowing we can, we can finish the race. And he said, but, but you can run another 8 K. And I said, well, can't you? And he said, uh, uh, I guess. And, and off we went and he started to weave across the road as we were finishing. And when we did finish, I threw my arms around him and I said, we did it. We did it. We're going to Boston. And he passed out. And when he came when he came to, he said, women have hidden potential in endurance and stamina. Well, you know, we discovered that. And that's something now that women are 
really responding to, that they don't have this, of course, the speed, the power, and the strength of men, but we have endurance, stamina, flexibility, and balance that men don't have. And that board is changing to accommodate this. And the reason there's such enormous popularity in women's distance running is because of two reasons. One, we're pretty good at it. You know, we have a fat resource that holds up really well. We can go the distance. And the second reason is because it gives us such an enormous sense of empowerment. Running does that for everybody, but I think for women, it's absolutely transformational. In the United States, and rather in all of North America, actually, of all the participating runners, 58, 58% of them are women. And that's an amazing, amazing statistic. So my reward was to go to the Boston Marathon. I didn't go to the Boston Marathon to make a political statement in 1967. I went there because it was my reward from Arnie, my coach. But he really insisted that I register officially for the race. I was a little concerned about this, and we checked the rule book. There was nothing against women running the Boston Marathon in the rule book, and there was nothing on the entry form about gender. And we filled out the entry form, and I, and I remember saying to him, I said, there's no, nothing about gender on this entry form. And he said, nobody would believe a woman could run a marathon, and nobody would believe a woman would want to run a marathon. And I said, okay. And he said, you've got you to do this officially because the Boston Marathon is a serious race. And we got to follow the rules, exactly. And I had to pay a $2 entry fee. Um, and I signed the entry form, as I always sign my name, K.V. Switzer, with my initials. So obviously, when the form went in, the officials thought it was from a guy. And on the morning of the race, which was sleeting and snowing, Arnie went in and picked up the numbers for our whole team. There were, were several of us who went up to Boston together. And we pinned on our bibs outside. The guys came over to us all around, the runners, saying, hey, are you going to run? That's great. A girl is here. I wish my wife would run. Wonderful, wonderful support. So I felt, you know, there was going to be no incident about this whatsoever. And as the race started, and we were laughing and carrying on like you usually do at the beginning of a race because you know it's going to be torture later. And... Um, uh, the press truck came by and the, they were all taking our pictures. But uh, on the press truck was the race director who was getting teased about a girl being in his race. He jumped off the press truck, ran down the street after me and tackled me by the shoulders and screamed at me, get the hell out of my race and tried to rip off my bib number. And I was so shocked and so scared. I just tried to get away from him. And my coach was yelling, leave her alone. She's OK. I trained her. And I, I, he just smacked my coach away, and he kept up coming after me. But my boyfriend was also running with me, which is another story. Actually, he was only in the race because the girl could run the marathon. He could run the marathon. And he happened to be about 110 stone, I mean, 110 kilo uh, a hammer thrower. And he threw a cross body block into the official and sent him out of the race instead. So the series of pictures from this incident were flashed around the world even before I finished the race. But the most important part of that incident was, first of all, that I was very, very scared, humiliated, taunted at by the press truck, but made the decision regardless that I was going to finish the race. I just said, I'm finishing on my hands and my knees if I have to. I was so, so upset. And I knew if I didn't finish that everybody would believe women couldn't do it. So I had to finish the race. So there's a tremendous amount of pressure, and I often think about that girl at 20 making that decision and how courageous it really was. 
because all the way along for the next number of kilometers, the press truck just kept staying with us saying, when are you going to drop out? What are you trying to prove? You know, who do you think you are anyway? You know, those kinds of remarks. And you, you really have to then understand, suddenly it became very political for me. And I was beginning to realize that this was the eve of the women's liberation movement, the second great movement. And women were always being accused of barging into places where they weren't welcome and couldn't do it anyway. And of course they couldn't do it anyway if people were trying to push them out of the way and belittle them. So I said, I am going to finish. And I did. And that made all the difference. Um, still, I got expelled from the Athletic Federation, as did my whole team, for running in a race with men, for running more than a mile and a half, for fraudulently entering the race, and for running without a chaperone. So that gives you an idea of how, how far we've come in 50 years. Quite phenomenal. Soon after your historic Boston Marathon, you led the campaign to get official status for women in distance races and in the Boston Marathon. You also helped launch the first women's only road race and the Avon International Marathon for Women in London. And of course, were integral in the introduction of the women's marathon into the Olympic Games. Can you speak a bit about your efforts in advancing women's running, some of the challenges and what has motivated you along the way? You know, it was really interesting. In that very first Boston Marathon, I get to, to thinking, well, it wasn't really the official's fault. He's just a product of his time. He doesn't believe that women can do anything. And then I got kind of angry at women, and I wondered where they are, were in the race. You know, why, why aren't they here? And I realized, golly, this because they're afraid. You know, they're afraid of exactly what happened to me. And they're afraid of doing anything arduous because they believed all the old myths about limitation. And mostly they're afraid because they'd never had an opportunity to try. And I decided, okay, I'm going to try to create that opportunity. Didn't know what it looked like, but I was going to try to do it. So you're right. I went through uh, first helping other women. Um, we got official in the Boston Marathon in 1972. Right after that, I organized the first women's only road race in Central Park, which got a tremendous amount of publicity and was a lot of fun. And by the way, that race still exists all these years later thousands of women, of course, now. And then I thought, okay, this is, this is a way to get women into running is to create something that's welcoming and non-intimidating. I wrote a business proposal to Avon Cosmetics and they loved my ideas. And the idea was to create a global circuit of races so that we could get the international representation required for Olympic acceptance. Fortunately, Avon was a big multinational company. They loved my ideas, and I set off to work making it happen. It was a very, very de demanding job, but I, I, was, I was riveted by the possibility. And eventually, we organized races in 27 countries and on all five continents, and eventually over a million women participated in these events. The bottom line is that every year, the races ended in a world-class women's only marathon. And in 1980, we staged it in London. We closed downtown London streets for the first time in history, in fact, for a sports event. And because the Americans had boycotted the Moscow Olympics, all the television came to cover this race. And the BBC and Eurovision, not wanting to be outdone, came and covered it as well. And then O Globo came from Brazil. So we had massive coverage and we had 27 countries, five continents represented when the Olympic requirement was only 24 countries and three continents. 
So we had the data and statistics to present to the International Olympic Committee, and they voted the women's marathon into the 1984 games in 1981. And it was it was a tremendous moment. It was like getting the right to vote because the right to vote was about our intellectual and social acceptance. This was really our physical acceptance. We had leveled the playing field in the Olympic Games. So that was absolutely tremendous. And besides, you know, how important a marathon is, is, is because everybody knows how far it is. You know, everybody knows that 42 kilometers is a long way. <laughs> and uh, it's not like watching a 400 meters or 200 meters. It's, it's, it's everybody knows the distance because they've walked or ridden a bike or driven or whatever over the distance. So that was, to me, one of the, the most exciting events in my life. It wasn't, as it turned out, the most. There were two more that were, were even more exciting than that to me, which, which we'll get to. But when you ask about the challenges of organizing, you know, I had to go to federation after federation after federation and convince them that we were going to do this race. And I got so much pushback from Brazil, from Japan, from countries where women, even in Japan, of course, which is a modern country, women were still really treated like second-class citizens. And so... To convince those federations really took some doing. It really helped to have a good sponsor in my back pocket. And we worked with local running clubs for the most part. But we did get federation sanction on every race. And when it was successful beyond even their wildest, my wildest dreams, certainly their wildest dreams, of course then they were going to support the event for Olympic inclusion when the vote took place in 1981. So that was really huge. We also had... Really, really good, strong support, which we helped finance some of this because these guys really needed the, the um, grants. But doctors who really did some evidence and research proving that women actually have the stamina and the uh, endurance capability far exceeding anything that anyone had, had yet discovered. And that, in fact, something like the marathon run was much more appropriate for them than something like the 100 meters or the shot put. So the, the, in other words, we were naturally suited for the endurance. So it wasn't at all harmful. And so that was, that was a real labor. That was about, but it was a labor of love, I must say. It was about eight years of my life constantly working and constantly going from country to country. But an interesting thing has happened. And that is, is that just as soon as you know you achieve something you think is completely change the playing field that everybody understands how you know women deserve these opportunities and are capable you, you you run into whole huge parts of the world where it is like the stone age you know where where people still and women themselves still believe the old myths um women have places where women have no opportunities whatsoever to be independent to get an education to leave the house to drive a car to uh, carry their own passport, restrictions of culture, religion, uh, and also poverty. And those kinds of barriers need to be broken down. And I thought, how in my lifetime could this, could this take place? And I didn't think it would in my lifetime, particularly in the Mideast. And then an amazing thing happened. My, my old bib number, 261, that the official tried to rip off of me in the 67 Boston Marathon suddenly became a number, like a kind of magic number or a cult number, meaning 261 is fearless in the face of adversity. 
That's what it stood for. And these people were writing to me, men and women all over the world, saying that number made them feel fearless. And they were wearing it on their back or their arm or getting tattooed with it. And I thought, what, what does this mean? And what it means is that all of us at one time or the other um, have been told that we're not good enough or we don't belong or we're not welcome. We can't do it anyway. We're not the right set or we're the wrong race or the wrong religion or we're too fat or we're too old or whatever. And then we start running and we have that personal feeling of transformation. And suddenly we feel we can do anything. We feel full of self-esteem and we feel fearless. So my girlfriends and I got together and we said, we got to capture this. We created 261 Fearless, a charity, a nonprofit foundation. And we're going around the world creating direct touch clubs where women get together in a non-judgmental, non-competitive environment and just help other women to take the first step. It's just as simple as putting one foot in front of the other. And the friendships, the socialization, and the sort of awakening of empowerment has been phenomenal. We're only two and a half years old with this foundation. We're already in 11 countries. We have over 2,000 participants, and we're growing every day. We have a very strong club network that's growing, and we would welcome any woman listening to join us to start a club anywhere. Just go to 261fearless.org and press the education button or how do I start a club button, and we will be all over you and see what we can do to continue the empowerment revolution wherever you are. As you mentioned, in recent years, the percentage of girls and women taking part in sport has definitely increased, but it's still smaller than percentage of boys and men. Now, the most recent statistics reveal that participation by middle school U.S. girls is actually decreasing. So I'd like to ask you about why it is so difficult in taking that first step. What do you think are some of the biggest barriers to female participation in sport and physical activity today? It's really interesting that that happens in middle school. I'll tell you why is because when little girls are growing up, for the most part, they have a sense of empowerment that's pretty much equal to boys. And suddenly they get into middle school and they are reaching puberty. They're getting all kinds of crazy signals from boys and other girls. There's a lot of meanness, a lot of clickiness, a lot of uh, social media backbiting. And, and girls are often afraid then, you know, they, they, they lose their mojo and they um, lose that sense of empowerment and they, they back off from doing something that maybe is different from whatever all the other girls are doing. This is really a very too bad situation. One organization that is doing a tremendous amount to combat that is an organization called Girls on the Run where these girls get together after school and have a, a non-judgmental kind of meeting and they run together and they play together and they really, really learn how to counter, counteract bullying and counteract negative um, reactions to things and just let running take them away and, and give them that sense of empowerment. That's really important. But yeah, I mean, in terms of overall sports participation, here's, here's one of the problems is, is that, that after puberty, Men and boys are, are stronger and faster, more powerful, and the sports that we are all used to, and in the Olympics for the last 3,000 years, I mean, sports has always been about speed, power, and strength. We're just now developing sports that take care of 
uh, or address women's unique capabilities. In ultra runs, ultra trail runs, six-day runs, 24-hour runs, women are really quite exceptional and sometimes winning overall. It's going to be very interesting to see how sport changes. And I would love to see more of this happening. I would love to see more girls and women taking charge of a, of, um, of a sport and, and recreating it. The next generation is going to be changing the face of sport. Catherine, what can the sport and exercise medicine community do to play their part in all of this? Oh, like I would really love the sport and exercise community, the scientists, to move ahead a lot and really um, explore more of the, the reasons why women have more endurance. I mean, we can just say, okay, you have a better fat supply and you also, you know, or Mother Nature designed you so that you could take three days to have a baby. There's something no man could do to three days in labor. And why, but why physiologically does that happen? And how can we make that happen? And how can their discoveries help us create sports and opportunities for women to participate where they feel, you know, as entitled and as enriched as men? There are very, very few women in sports that earn anything like what men do or have the accolades or have the publicity. But I believe that will happen once we have things where we excel. The first thing I think people should do is to take women and older people very seriously when they are exercising because they're not really any different in, in their seriousness than professional athletes are often. Mm -hmm. One of the things I love is something called the green prescription, whereas in America we have such a problem here with obesity, with diabetes, there's an opioid epidemic, doctors just keep writing prescriptions for depression, overweight, all these different conditions, which really, really can be solved by going out for a run. And in New Zealand, they are writing prescriptions for people to do just that, to pay the membership, to join a running club, to subsidize a gym membership. And then they have to take their little report card in there and, and report for duty and, and actually get down and do it. Sometimes I used to think you could tell people that, you know what? All you have to do is touch this little button and you're going to get in really great shape and they still wouldn't do it. But I, it, once you get people out actually taking that first step, then they have that sense of empowerment and usually they follow through. So I think the Greens prescription is something I'd like to see go global. This year in June, you'll be speaking at the fourth biennial Female Athlete Conference in Boston, which is a conference that I know you have spoken at before. What can the BJSM community look forward to in a few weeks' time at the conference, and why should it be on everyone's radar? You know, this conference is really quite phenomenal. I learned a lot about it when I first went there. It's under the auspices of Boston Children's Hospital. It's going to be held at Babson College on the weekend, uh, uh, sorry, the days of June 7th and 8th, Friday and Saturday. I had no idea of the depth of problem of some conditions of uh, athletes, women, female athletes of, of anorexia, you know, depression or of, you know, injuries, uh, chronic, chronic injuries caused by the different shape of the pelvis and the hips um, and footfall. So th those kinds of things were eye opening to me. But also is the discussion when I was there the first time was it was brand new to actually talk about this transformational experience of running and the, and the empowerment part and um, how important a community is. And so I'm, I'm really glad that the conference has expanded very, very broadly 
to beyond injuries, beyond anorexia, and into areas of opportunity and discovery. My team and I, Edith Sushman from Austria and Juliet McGratton from the UK, who is herself a doctor, are going to be presenting on what 261 Fearless is doing in terms of this empowerment and transformation. Catherine, I think this is a great place to end it. But if our listeners would like to find out more about you or what you're up to, where should they go? They can go to my website, which is marathonwoman.com. But I think it's more interesting for them to go to 261fearless.org. I'm there also, um, and you can communicate with me through there. But you will learn so much more about this broader, most wonderful community of empowered women through running. Thank you very much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Daniel. Good luck to everybody. You've been listening to a BJSM podcast with Catherine Switzer. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with friends or leave us a review and connect to our social media channels. You can listen to a new clinically relevant BJSM podcast every Friday, and there is no better place to find them than on the BJSM app. As always, we hope you have a physically active day.